Saint Bartholomew's Eve by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Christensen. Chapter Twenty, The Tocsin. As soon as Francois had finished his account of the attempted assassination of the admiral, he and Philip sallied out. The latter having hastily armed himself, I must go back to the Louvre. Francois said, and take my place by the king of Navarre. He is going to see the king, and to demand permission to leave Paris at once. Condé and La Rochefoucauld are going to see the king as soon as they return from the admiral's, for the same purpose, as it is evident their lives are not safe here. Philip made his way to the admiral's house in the Rue de Bethesy. Numbers of Huguenot gentlemen were hurrying in that direction, all, like himself, armed, and deeply moved with grief and indignation for Coligny was regarded with deep affection as well as reverence by his followers. Each, as he overtook others, eagerly inquired the news, for as yet most of them had learned nothing beyond vague rumors of the affair. Philip's account of it increased their indignation, so it was no act of a mere fanatic, but the work of the Guises, and probably of Catherine and Anjou. In a short time between two and three hundred gentlemen were gathered in the courtyard and antechamber of Coligny's house. Some walked up and down, silent and stern. Others gathered in groups and passionately discussed the matter. This was an attack not only upon the admiral, but upon the Huguenots in general. It was the work of the Guises, ever the deadliest foe of the Reformed faith, the author of every measure taken against them, the cause of all the blood that had been shed in the civil wars. One thing was certain, all must leave Paris and prepare for a renewal of the war. But it was equally certain they could not leave until the admiral was fit to be moved. Truly he is a saint said one of the gentlemen, who had come down from the room where Coligny was lying. He suffered atrociously at the hands of the surgeon, for he had come without his instruments, and amputated Coligny's fingers with a dagger so blunt that it was only on the third attempt that he succeeded. Merlin, his minister, was by his side, with several of his most intimate friends. We were in tears at the sight of our noble chief thus traitorously struck down. He turned to us and said calmly, My friends, why do you weep? As for me, I deem myself happy at having thus received wounds for the sake of God. Then he said that he most sincerely forgave the man who wounded him, and those who had instigated him to make the attack, knowing for certain that it was beyond their power to hurt him, for even should they kill him, death would be a certain passage to life. An hour later, Francois arrived. The prince has seen the king, Philip. He is furious, and has sworn that he will inflict the most signal punishment upon the authors and instigators of the crime. Coligny has received the wound but the king himself most felt the smart. The king of Navarre told me he was sure that Charles was deeply in earnest. He feels it in a threefold sense. First, because it is the renewal of the troubles that he had hoped to put an end to. In the second place, because Coligny is his guest. And lastly, because he has the greatest respect and confidence in him, not only believing in his wisdom, but knowing that his counsel is always sincere and disinterested. He is coming to visit the admiral himself this afternoon, Philip. It is no use our staying here. There is nothing to be done, and no prospect of seeing the admiral. As they moved toward the entrance to the courtyard, the Count de Valacourt joined them. I have just left the admiral, he said. He is easier, and the king's surgeon is of opinion that he will recover from his wounds, and possibly may be fit to travel in a litter in another week. That is good news indeed, Francois said, for the sooner we are all out of Paris the better. There is no doubt of that, the Count agreed. But as all say that the king is furious at this attack upon the admiral, I do not think the Guises dare strike another blow for some time. Still, 
I shall be glad indeed when we can set forth. It is certain we cannot leave the Admiral here. The villains who made the attempt will be furious at its failure, and next time they may use the weapon to which they are most accustomed, poison. Even if the king himself begged him to stay at the Louvre until cured, Catherine de Medici is there, and I would not trust him under the same roof for her for all my estates. We have been talking it over, and all agree that we must wait until he can be moved. Inconstant as Charles is, there is no fear of a change in his friendly intentions now. He has already closed all the gates of Paris save two, and everyone who goes in or out is closely questioned, and has to show his papers. By this time they had arrived at the door of the Count's dwelling. Come in, he said. My daughter is terribly upset at this attack upon the Admiral, for whom she has a profound reverence, and, were she a Catholic, would, I doubt not, make him her patron saint. How is he, father? Claire asked eagerly, as they entered the room. He is better, Claire, for the king's physician thinks he has every chance of recovering. God be praised, she said earnestly. It would indeed have been a terrible day for us all had the assassin taken his life, and it would have seemed a mark of heaven's anger at this marriage of the Protestant king with the Catholic princess. What says King Charles? He is as angry as any of us, and declares that the assassin and those who abetted him shall be punished in the severest manner. He has visited the admiral, and expressed his grief and indignation to him. I shall be glad to get back in Dauphiny, father. This city, with its wickedness and its violence, is hateful to me. We shall soon go, dear. The doctor hopes that in a week the admiral will be well enough to be moved in a litter, and we shall all accompany him. A week is a long time, father. So much may happen in a week. There is no fear of anything happening, Claire. You must not let the sad business affect your nerves. The anger of the king is so great that you may be sure none will attempt to repeat the stroke. What think you, Monsieur de Leville? I agree with you altogether, Count. And you, Monsieur Philip? I see no cause for fear, Count, and yet I feel sure that it would be well to take every precaution. I acknowledge that I have no grounds whatever for my fear. I have been infected by my lackey, who is generally the lightest-hearted and most reckless fellow, but who has now turned croaker and fears a sudden rising of the mob of Paris, instigated thereto by the Guises. Has he heard anything to favor such an idea, or is it merely born of today's outrage? No, I think he has heard nothing specific, though he may have caught up vague threats and wanderings through the streets. Why, that is not like you, the Count said, smiling, who have been through so many fights and dangerous adventures, to be alarmed at a shadow. No, Count, I do not think that I am given, any more than is my lackey, to somber thoughts, but I own that he has infected me and I would that some precautions could be taken. Precautions of what kind, Monsieur Philip? I have not thought them out, Philip said, but were I the next in rank to the admiral, I would enjoin that a third of our number should be under arms night and day, and should at night patrol our quarters. Secondly, that a rallying place should be appointed, say at the admiral's, to which all should mount and ride directly an alarm is given. The first part could hardly be managed here, the count said gravely. It would seem that we doubted the royal assurances of good faith and his promises of protection. We have enemies enough about the king's ear, and such a proceeding would be sure to be misrepresented to him. You know how wayward are his moods, and that it would need but a slight thing to excite his irritation and undo all the good that the admiral has effected. Two or three other Huguenot gentlemen now entered, and a general conversation on the state of affairs took place. Philip was standing a little apart from the others, when Claire came up. You really believe in danger, Monsieur Philip? Frankly, I do, mademoiselle. The population hate us. There have been Huguenot massacres over and over again in Paris. 
The geezers are doubtless the instigators of this attack upon the admiral. They are the idols of the Paris mob, and if they gave the word it would at once rise against us. As I told your father, I have no real reason for uneasiness, but nevertheless I am uneasy. Then the danger must be real, the girl said simply. Have you any advice to give me? Only this. You have but a week to stay here in Paris. During that time make excuses so as not to stir abroad in the streets more than you can help. And in the second place, I would say, lie down in your clothes at night, so as to be in readiness to rise instantly. I will do that. There is nothing else? Nothing that I can think of. I hope and trust that the emergency will not come. But at any rate, until it does come, we can do no more. A few minutes later, Philip and his cousin took their leave. The former went back to his lodgings, the latter to the Louvre. Philip was surprised at not finding Pierre, and sat up later than usual expecting his return, but it was not till he was rising the next morning that the man made his appearance. "'Why, where have you been all night?' Philip asked angrily. "'This is not the time for pleasure.' "'I have been outside the walls, master.' "'What in the world did you go there for, Pierre?' "'Well, sir, I was here when Monsieur de Laville brought in the news of the shooting of the admiral. This seemed to me to bear out all that I have said to you. You hurried away without my having time to speak to you, so I took it upon myself to act. "'In what way, Pierre?' "'I went straight to the stable, sir, and took one of your honour's charges on my horse, and, riding one and leading the other, passed through the gate before the orders came about closing them. I rode them to a village six miles away, and put them up at a small inn there, and left them in the landlord's charge.' I told the stable-boy that he should have a crown for himself, if on my return I found the horses in as good condition as I left them. Then I walked back to Paris and found a crowd of people unable to enter, and learned that the gates had been closed by the king's order. I went off to St. Denis, and there bought a long rope and an iron hook, and at two in the morning, when I thought that any sentries there might be on the walls would be drowsy, came back again to Paris, threw up my hook, and climbed into one of the bastions near the hut we had marked. There I slept until the morning, and now you see me. I have taken out the horses so that, should you be obliged to fly, there will be means of escape. One charger will suffice for your wants here, and to ride away upon if you go out with a Huguenot company, or by force of arms. As for me, I would make my way out on foot, get the horses, and rejoin you. It was a good idea, Pierre, and promptly carried out. But no one here has much thought of danger, and I feel ashamed of myself at being the only one to feel uneasy. A wise man is uneasy while the fool sleeps, Pierre said. If the Prince of Condé had been uneasy the night before Jeannoc, he would not have lost his life, and we should not have lost a battle. No harm has been done. If danger does come, we at least are prepared for it. However, surely we may count upon victory. A good general always lays his plans in case of defeat. At any rate, we are prepared for everything. Pierre muttered something to himself. What did you say, Pierre? I was only thinking, Mester, that I should feel pretty confident of our getting away, with there only our two selves to think about, what with our disguises, and what with your honour's strong arm, and what I can do to back you, and what with our being on our guard. It would be hard if we did not make our way safe off. But I foresee that, should there be trouble, it is not of your own safety you will be thinking. Mademoiselle de Valacour is engaged to the Sieur de Pascal, Philip said gravely. So I heard from one of the Count's lackeys, but there was many a slip between the cup and the lip and in such days as these there is many an engagement that never becomes a marriage. I guessed how it would be that night after you had saved Mademoiselle Claire's life, and I thought so still more when we were staying at Valacour. Then your thoughts ran too fast, Paris. Mademoiselle de Valacour is a great heiress, 
and the Count should, of course, give her in marriage to one of his own rank. Paris shrugged his shoulders almost imperceptibly. Your honor is doubtless right, he said humbly, and therefore, seeing that she has her father and Monsieur de Pascal to protect her, we need not trouble more about these articles of attire stowed away on the roof above, but shall be able to concern ourselves solely with our own safety, which puts a much better complexion on the matter. The whole matter is ridiculous, Paris, and I am a fool to have listened to you. There, go and see about breakfast, or I shall lose my patience with you altogether. There were several consultations during the day between the leading Huguenots. There was no apparent ground for suspicion that the attack upon the admiral had been part of a general plot, that it was but the outcome of the animosity of the Guises and the Queen Mother against a man who had long withstood them, who was now higher than themselves in the king's confidence, and who had persuaded him to undertake an enterprise that would range France on the side of the Protestant powers. The balance of evidence is all in favor of the truth of this supposition, and to the effect that it was only upon the failure of their scheme against the admiral that the conspirators determined upon a general massacre of the Huguenots. They worked upon the weak king's mind until they persuaded him that Coligny was at the head of a plot against himself, and that nothing short of his death and those of his followers could procure peace and quiet for France. At last, in a sudden rage of fury, Charles not only ranged himself on their side, but astonished Catherine, Anjou, and their companions by going even farther than they had done, and declaring that every Huguenot should be killed. This sudden change, and his subsequent conduct during the few months that remained to him of life, seemed to point to the fact that this fresh outbreak of trouble shattered his weak brain, and that he was not fairly responsible for the events that followed, the guilt of which rests wholly upon Catherine de Medici, Henri of Anjou, and the leaders of the part of the Guises. Philip spent a considerable portion of the day at the Louvre with Henri of Navarre, Francois de Laville, and a few of the young king's closest followers. There was no shadow of disquiet in the minds of any of them. The doctors reported that the admiral's state was favorable, and although all would have been glad to be on their way south, they regarded the detention of a few days as a matter of little importance. Listening to their talk about the court entertainments and pleasures, Philip quite shook off his uneasiness, and was angry with himself for having listened to Paris's prognostications of evil. All these Huguenot lords know France and the Parisians better than I do, he said to himself. No thought of danger occurs to them. It is not even thought necessary that a few of them should take up their abode at the admiral's. They have every faith in the king's protestations and pledges for their safety. Philip dined at the Louvre, and it was ten o'clock before he returned to his lodging. He was in excellent spirits, and saluted Paris with a laughing inquiry. Well, bird of ill omen, what fresh plottings have you discovered? You will not believe me, master, when I tell you. Oh, then, is there something new? Philip said, seating himself on a couch. Let me hear all about it, Paris and I will try not to laugh. Will you descend with me to the door, Monsieur Philip? Assuredly I will, if it will please you, though what you are going to show me there I cannot imagine. Paris led the way downstairs and out through the door. Do you see that, sir? Yes, I see that, Paris. What do you take it to be, sir? Well, it is not too dark to see what it is, Paris. It is a small white cross that some urchin has chalked on the door. Will you please to walk a little farther, sir? There is a cross on this door. There is none here, neither on the next. Here you see another, and then a door without one. Now, sir, does that not strike you as curious? Well, I don't know, Paris. A boy might very well chalk some doors as he went along, and leave others unmarked. Yes, sir, but there was one very remarkable thing. I have gone on through several streets, and it has always been the same. So far as I can discover by questioning the concierges, at every house in which Huguenots are lodging, there was a white cross on the door, 
In the houses that are not marked, there are no Huguenots. That is strange, certainly, Pierre, Philip said, struck alike by the fact and by the earnestness with which Pierre expressed it. Are you quite sure of what you say? I am quite sure, sir. I returned here at nine o'clock and saw this mark on our door. I did not pay much heed to it, but went upstairs. Then, as I thought it over, I said to myself, Is this a freak of some passerby, or is it some sort of signal? Then I thought I would see whether our house alone was marked, or whether there were crosses on other doors. I went to the houses of several gentlemen of our party, and on each of their doors was a white cross. Then I looked farther and found that other houses were unmarked. Some of these are not, and asked for one or other of your friends. In each case I heard that I was mistaken, but that no Huguenots were lodging there. It is evident, sir, that this is not a thing of chance, but that these crosses are placed there by design. Philip went down the street and satisfied himself that Pierre had spoken correctly, and then returned to his lodgings. Pausing, however, before the house of the Count de Valacour and erasing the cross upon it, he entered his own door without touching the mark. But Pierre, who followed him in, rubbed the sleeve of his doublet across it unnoticed by his master, and then followed him upstairs. Philip seated himself thoughtfully. I like not these marks, Pierre. There may be nothing of importance in them. Some fanatic may have taken the trouble to place these crosses upon our doors, cursing us as he did so, but at the same time, that they may have been placed there for some set purpose, of which I am ignorant. Hitherto there has been nothing whatever to give any foundation to your fancies, but here is at least something tangible, whatever it may mean. What is your own idea? My own idea is, sir, that they intend to arrest all the admiral's followers, and that the king, while speaking us fair, is really guided by Catherine, and has consented to our plans for the capture of all of the Huguenot lords who have come into this trap. I cannot believe that such an act of black treachery can be contemplated, Pierre. All Europe would cry out against the king, who, inviting numbers of his nobles to the marriage of his sister, seized that occasion for imprisoning them. It may not be done by him, sir. It may be the work of the Guises' agents among the mob of Paris, and that they intend to massacre us as they did at Rouen and a score of other places, and as they have done here in Paris more than once. That is as hard to believe as the other, Paris. My own supposition is by far the most probable, and that it is the work of some fanatic. But at any rate, we will be on the watch tonight. It is too late to do anything else, and were I to go round to our friends, they would mock at me for paying any attention to such a trifle as a chalk mark on a door. I own that I think it serious, because I have come, in spite of my reason, to believe somewhat in your forebodings, but no one else seems to entertain any such fears. Opening the casement, Philip seated himself there. Do you lie down, Pierre? At two o'clock I will call you, and you shall take my place. Pierre went out, but before lying down he again went quietly downstairs, and with a wet cloth entirely erased the mark from the door, and then placing his sword and his pistols ready at hand, lay down upon his pallet. At one o'clock Philip aroused him. There is something unusual going on here, Pierre. I can see a light in the sky, as of many torches, and can hear a confused sound, as of the murmur of men. I will sally out and see what it is. Placing his pistols in his belt, and taking a sword, he wrapped himself in his cloak, and followed by Pierre, also armed, went down into the street. As he went along, he overtook two men. As he passed under a lamp, one of them exclaimed, Is that you, Monsieur Fletcher? He turned. It was assured de Pascal. It is I, Monsieur de Pascal. I was going out to learn the meaning of those lights over there. That is just what I am doing myself. As the night is hot, I could not sleep, so I threw open my windows and saw those lights, which were, as it appeared to me, somewhere in the neighborhood of the admiral's house, and I thought it was well to see what they meant. 
As they went along, they came upon men with lighted torches, and saw that in several of the streets, groups of men with torches were silently standing. "'What is taking place?' the Sieur de Pascal asked one of the men. "'There is going to be a night mask and a mock combat at the Louvre.' "'It is strange I heard nothing about it at the Louvre,' Philip said as they proceeded on their way. "'I was with the King of Navarre up to ten o'clock, and had anything been known of it by him or the gentleman with him, I should have been sure to have heard of it.' They were joined by two or three other Huguenot gentlemen, roused by the unusual light and talking in the street, and they proceeded together to the Louvre. Large numbers of torches were burning in front of the palace, and a body of soldiers was drawn up there. The man was right, the Sieur de Pascal said. There is evidently some diversion going on here. As they approached, they saw a movement in front, and then three or four men ran towards them. Why, de Vignay? Pascal exclaimed as the first ran up. What is the matter? That I do not know, de Vignay said. I was roused half an hour ago by the lights and noise, and came down with de la Riviere, Maurepas, Costelot, and de Vigor, who lodged with me, to see what it was about. As we approached the soldiers, they began to jeer at us in a most insolent manner. Naturally, we replied, and threatened to report them to their officers, when the insolent varlets drew and ran at us. Maurepas has, as you see, been wounded by a halbert, and as we five could not give battle to that crowd of soldiers, we ran for it. I shall lay the matter before La Rochefoucauld, and request him to make a complaint to the king. What can we do now, gentlemen? I see not that we can do anything, de Pascal said. We have heard that these torchlight gatherings are part of a plane for a sham attack on a castle, or something of that sort, for the amusement of the king. Doubtless the soldiers are gathered for that purpose. We cannot arouse La Rochefoucauld at this hour of the night. That is certain. So I see nothing to do but to go home and wait till morning. You do not think, Philip said, that there is any possibility of a general attack upon us being intended? What? An attack got up at the Louvre under the very eyes of the king, who is our firm friend? You are dreaming, Monsieur Fletcher. I have one suspicious fact to go upon, Philip said quietly, and then related the discovery of the crosses upon the doors. The others, however, were absolutely incredulous that any treachery could be intended, and after talking for a short time longer, they returned to their lodgings. What is to be done now, Pierre? I should say we had better search farther, sir. If there is any harm intended, the mob of Paris will be stirring. Let us go down towards the Hotel de Vieux. That is always the centre of mischief. If all is quiet there, it may be that the story is correct, and that it is really only a court diversion. But that does not explain why the street should be lighted up near the admiral's. Indeed it does not, Paris. After they had passed another group of men with torches, Paris said, Did you notice, sir, that each of those men had a piece of white stuff bound about his arm, and that it was the same with those we passed before? If there was any mischief intended, we should be more likely to learn what it is, if we were to put on the same badge. The idea is a good one, Paris. And Philip took out his handkerchief, tore it in two, and handing half of it to Paris, fastened the other around his arm. As they went along, they met men with torches or lanterns, moving in the same direction as themselves. All wore white handkerchiefs or scarves around their arms. Philip became more and more anxious as they went on, and regretted that he had not returned to his lodgings and renewed his watch there. However, a few minutes' walking took them to the Hotel de Vieux. The square in front of the building was faintly illuminated by a few torches here and there, and by large crescents that blazed in front of the hotel. The light, however, was sufficient to show a dense body of men drawn up in the square, 
and the ruddy light of the flames flushed from helmet, lance-point, and axe. "'What think you now, Monsieur Philip? There must be eight or ten thousand men here. I should say all the city bands under their captains.' As they paused, a citizen officer came up to them. "'All is ready, Your Excellency. I do not think that a man is absent from his post. The orders remain unchanged, I suppose?' "'Quite unchanged,' Philip said briefly, seeing that in the faint light he was mistaken for someone else. "'And the bell is to be the signal for beginning?' "'I believe there has been a change in that respect,' Philip said. "'But you will hear that later on. I am only here to see that all is in readiness.' "'Everything has been done as ordered, Your Excellency. "'The gates are closed, and will not be opened "'except to one bearing special orders under the King's own seal. "'The boats have all been removed from the wharves. "'There will be no escape.' "'Philip repressed a strong impulse to run the man through the body, "'and only said, "'Good, your zeal will not be forgotten.' "'Then he turned and walked away. "'They had gone but a few paces when, in the distance, "'the report of a pistol was heard. "'Too late!' he exclaimed in passionate regret. Come, Paris! And he broke into a rapid run. Several times groups of men came out from by-streets at the sound of their rapid footsteps. But Philip exclaimed, Away there! I am on urgent business for Anjou and the Guise. The men fell back at once in each case, not doubting from the badges on the arms, which they could make out in the darkness, that Philip was bearing some important order. To the admirals first, he said to Paris. It is there they will surely begin. But as they entered the Rue de Bethesy, he saw a number of men pouring out from the admiral's house with drawn swords and waving their torches over their heads. By the light, Philip could make out Henry of Guise and Henry of Valois with their attendants and soldiers. We are too late here, Paris. The admiral has doubtless been murdered. His confidence in the king's word has undone him. Coligny, indeed, had refused the author of many Protestant gentlemen to spend the night in the house and even Teligny, his son-in-law, had gone to his own lodgings a short distance away. He had with him only his chaplain Merlin, the king's surgeon, three gentlemen, and four or five servants, while in the court below were five of the king of Navarre's Swiss guards. The admiral had been awakened by the increasing noise without, but entertained no alarm whatever. Suddenly a loud knocking was heard at the outer gate, and a demand for entrance in the king's name. The admiral directed one of the gentlemen, named Lee Bon, to go down and unbar the gate. As he did so, Cossain, an officer of Anjou's household, rushed in, followed by fifty soldiers, and stabbed Libon to the heart. The soldiers had been dispatched by the king himself under pretense of guarding the Huguenots, and twelve hundred arquebusers had also been posted under the same pretext in the neighborhood. The faithful Swiss defended the inner door, and when driven back, defended for a time a barricade hastily thrown upon the stairs. One of the Huguenot gentlemen rushed into the admiral's room with the news that the gate had been forced. The admiral calmly replied, I have kept myself for a long time in readiness for death. Save yourselves if you can. It would be hopeless for you to attempt to save my life. In obedience to his orders, all who were with him, save a German interpreter, fled to the roof and made their escape in the darkness. The barricade was raised, and a German named Besme, a follower of the Duke of Guise, was the first to rush into the admiral's room. Coligny was seated in a chair, and Besme struck him two blows with his sword while those following dispatched him. Guise was waiting in the courtyard below. When he heard that the admiral was killed, he ordered the body to be thrown out of the window. When he recognized that it was indeed the body of the admiral, he gave it a brutal kick, while one of his followers cut off his head. And then Guise called upon the soldiers to follow him, saying, We have begun well. Let us now see to the others, for so the king commands. 
as Philip turned from the spot, the bell of the church of St. Germain l'Auxerrois pealed forth, and shouts instantly rose from all quarters. As he reached the street in which he lodged, Philip saw that it was already half full of armed men, who were shouting, Death to the Huguenots, and were hammering at many of the doors. He fell at once into a walk, and made his way through them unmolested, the white badge on his arm seeming to guarantee that he was a friend. He passed his own door, and made for that of the Count de Valacour. A combat was going on in front of it, and by the light of the torches, Philip saw de Pascal defending himself bravely against a host of enemies. Sword in hand, Philip sprang forward, but before he could make his way through the soldiers, a musket shot rang out, and de Pascal fell dead. Philip drew back. To our own house, Paris, he exclaimed to his lackey, who was keeping close behind him. We can do nothing here, and the door may resist for a few minutes. There was no one in front of the entrance, though at all the doors marked with a white cross, the soldiers were hammering with the butts of their arquebuses. They slipped in, pushed the bars across, ran upstairs and made their way onto the roof, and climbed along till they reached the window of the house in which de Valacour lodged, felt their way across the room till they discovered the door, issued out, and as soon as they found the staircase, ran down. Already there was a turmoil below. A light streamed out from a door of the Count's apartment on the first floor. Philip ran in. Claire de Valacour was standing with one hand resting on the table, deadly pale, but quiet. She was fully dressed. "'Where is your father?' He has gone down with the servants to hold the stairs. I will join him, but we will take care of you. He knows what to do. We will follow you, quick, for your own sake and your father's. I cannot go and leave him. You will do him no good by staying, and delay may cost us our lives. You must go at once. If you do not, at the risk of your displeasure, I will carry you. I will go, she said. You saved me before, and I trust you. Trust Paris as you would trust me. Now, Paris, take your hand and hurry here upstairs. The clash of swords, mingled with shouts and oaths, were heard below, and Philip, as he saw Paris turn with Claire de Valacour, ran down. On the next landing, the Count, with four of his serving men, was defending himself against the assault of a crowd of armed men who were pushing up the staircase. Others behind them held torches, while some of those engaged in the fray held a torch in one hand and a sword in the other. Ah, is it you, Monsieur Fletcher? the Count said as Philip placed himself by his side felling one of the foremost of the assailants as he did so with a sweeping blow. It is I, Count. My house is not attacked, and I have sent off your daughter in charge of my man to gain it along the roofs. We will follow them as soon as we can beat back these villains. The king's troops must arrive shortly. The king's troops are here. This is done by his orders, and all Paris is in arms. The admiral has already been murdered. The Count gave a cry of fury and threw himself upon his assailants. His companions did the same, and step by step drove them backwards down the stairs. There was a cry below of, Shoot them down! And a moment later, three or four arquebusers flashed out from the hall. The Count, without a word, pitched forward among the soldiers, and two of the retainers also fell. Then the crowd surged up again. Philip fought desperately for a time. Another shot rang out, and he felt a sudden smart across his cheek. He turned and bounded up the stairs, paused a moment at the top, and discharged his two pistols at the leaders of the assailants, pulled shut the door of the Count's chamber, leaving the corridor in darkness, and then sprang up the stairs. When he reached the door of the unused room by which he had entered, he fastened it behind him, got through the window and closed it after him, and then rapidly made his way along the roofs until he reached his own. Closing and fastening the casement, he ran down to his room. Claire was standing there with Puri by her side. She gave a low cry as he entered alone. "'My father!' God has taken him, Philip said, 
as he has taken many others tonight. He died painlessly, mademoiselle, by a shot from below. Claire sank into a chair and covered her face with her hands. His will be done, she said in a low but firm voice, as she looked up a minute later. We are all in his hands and can die but once. Will they soon come? I trust not. They may follow along the roof when they cannot find us in any of the rooms, but they will have no clue as to which house we have entered. Then I will remain here and wait for them. Then, mademoiselle, you will sacrifice our lives as well as your own, for assuredly we will not leave you. Thus far we have escaped, and if you will follow my directions, we may all escape together. Still, if you wish it, we can die here together. What is to be done? she asked, standing up. Pierre handed Philip a bundle. I brought them down as I passed, he said. Here is a disguise, Philip said, handing it to the girl. I pray you to put it on at once. We also have disguises, and will return in them in a few minutes. End of chapter 20. Recorded December 2008.